So we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter one. Uh, great book. I think it's a very um, appropriate book, no matter what culture or where you're at. So I think it, it was four years ago, back in December, I took my oldest two daughters, Carissa and Bella, down to Brazil. And we didn't go to Rio or the nice parts of Brazil. We went to the Amazon jungle. And we went back to the back waters of the Amazon jungle. So we went not to the Amazon river, but to a tributary of a tributary of the Amazon called the EDD river, where my brother-in-law and his wife and four kids were living and doing missionary work. And this river is, I don't know, a thousand miles long. And there's maybe a thousand people that live on the whole river. So it's very remote, very low population density. And what we would do is we'd get on this boat and then we'd drive, you know, not drive, we would motor. We'd motor the boat along uh, with alligators and piranhas and big giant snakes. And just, it was amazing. Like everything down there bites. The butterflies bite. You're like, ah, what just, oh, a butterfly bit me. So it's just, it's a crazy place. So we're, we'd motor up and then we'd go up, however far you could go in a day. And we'd stop at like this very primitive grass hut with bamboo walls. And uh, they would invite all their neighbors and like church service. When you go to church, you go to this church building on the river and then you'd wait there. And then everyone just paddles in with these canoes. So the parking lot is literally the river. They just paddle, they get out. It's so cool. So people would paddle in and come in. And then that evening, I'd have the opportunity to share something. So we're in this little grass hut uh, with maybe 10 people in there, 12 people in there, just little flickering glass, you know, lanterns. And it's just really cool. Um, primitive. They fish, uh, they hunt, uh, they grow stuff, they garden. You know, it's, that's, that's what they do. No electricity, no running water. Most of them don't have motors on their boats. They paddle them primitive. So I'm sharing in this one hut the first night and I'm facing kind of out and they've got this kind of wooden bench thing with blankets on it and they're sitting on it and people are just kind of around and there's this window. And as I'm sharing, Clyde, my brother-in-law is translating and I'm sharing and all of a sudden I see this giant spider, like huge, crawls up over the windowsill and then crawls up onto the back of this, this bench thing that these, there's probably like six people on it. And it's about ready to just hop on somebody. So I'm like, there's a spider. And Clyde just keeps translating. So I, I, he's like, and there's a spider. So I'm like, and Jesus was walking on the water and there's a spider and there's a spider. So everybody's like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard this story before, right? I'm like, no, no, there's a spider right there. I'm like, ah, and so they take this broom and they kick it out and it takes off, I guess. And so I keep preaching. Three minutes later, spider's back. So I'm like, it must really like the sermon because it came back for more, all right? So that's this place and I share Jesus and we get done. And um, in my mind, I'm thinking primitive, primitive, primitive. And they come up and they start asking me questions. And the questions they asked, I thought, these are unbelievable. They're like, what's it all mean? I stare up at the stars at night and I sit and I think, why am I here? What's my purpose? One of them was like, you know, I planned this big thing and I, and I, and I invested all my money into this thing and it was, I was gonna grow manioc and, and then this um, plague came and killed everything. 
Why does that happen to me? I'm serving God and why did that bad thing happen to me? And as these people are sharing and they're talking that life is hard and why is this? And what's our, I went, my goodness. It doesn't matter what culture you're in or what day you're in or what age you are. Ecclesiastes is the book for you. It's not an old book, it's an eternal book. That what it addresses are the very deep, important questions that I think every culture through history and every person has asked, why are we here? What is the purpose? What happens when you die? The deep, deep questions. And that's why I love scripture. It's thick. Scripture doesn't provide this kind of fantasy world of people that are like, you know, superheroes and, and they, they don't ever sweat or smell or anything. Scripture presents reality like it is. Dirty, gritty, hard. That's this. It's not idealized. And so Ecclesiastes belongs to the part of scripture that's been called the wisdom literature. So wisdom literature is Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, right? Song of Solomon is about sex. Yeah, it's a bestseller. So that's how you get people to read their Bible. Song of Solomon, where is that at? So it's about sex, that's what it is. Um, the other three, they provide this, this very interesting to me, fascinating look at life. So Proverbs, you could say Proverbs is this. Proverbs is the middle. It's right at the center. When you read Proverbs, here's what you get. You get, this is how life is supposed to work. This is life under God. When things are working correctly, this is how it normally works. But know this, it's the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. And too often we take the book of Proverbs and we try to leverage it into something that it's not. Normally, yes, life should work this way. Normally, if you work hard, you'll get rewarded. Normally, if you're friendly, you'll make friends, right? Normally, if you do the right thing, it'll work out for you, right? Truth for life, that's, that's Proverbs. But if you read Proverbs carefully, even Proverbs says, sometimes there's a glitch. So read Proverbs 13, verse 23, where it says this, there's much abundance in the field of the poor, but it's swept away because of injustice. So poor people, Proverbs is admitting, have a harder time making it because sometimes there's laws and there's systems that are actually built against poor people getting ahead. And a king or a rich person can come in with money and corruption and sweep them up and take their land or take their property, which happened in the Bible. So it's admitting it. Sometimes it's glitchy. Or chapter 30, verse 14 says this, there's wicked men who whose teeth are like fangs and they prey on the helpless and the weak and the poor. Sometimes it's glitchy. Sometimes it doesn't work out like you thought it would. Now, normally it does work out this way and it's supposed to work out this way but sometimes it glitches. So that's the center. And the other two books, Job and Ecclesiastes, what they explain is the extremes that can happen in life. So Job, his book on wisdom is this. This is what happens to a man who does everything right and loses it all unfairly. 
unjustly. So how do you walk that out in life? When life has been brutal and wrong to you when you know it, that's the book of Job, right? The book of Ecclesiastes is the other side. Here's a guy who has everything. He's the king, he's sovereign, he's the ruler, he's smart, he's got a great reputation, the land is in peace, he's got ladies galore, right? He throws these lavish parties, he achieves more than anyone else. So what happens to a man who has everything and it's not enough? What happens there? That's the other extreme, right? Those are two, two extremes. Now, most of us are not gonna suffer like Job, but we're gonna suffer at some level. And so Job provides us wisdom on how do you walk through that? Now, very few of us are gonna have the achievement of the king of Ecclesiastes, but we'll all have some achievement and we'll all get to that point where we feel like it's not enough. We're gonna sample it so we get thoughtfulness and wisdom and a guide in Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, is, it's like this. It's the world's wisest fool. That's really what it is. Sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what it is. You have the world's wisest fool living life in Ecclesiastes and we get kind of a picture into it. So that's wisdom literature. So I'll put it like this. Proverbs would say this. It would say, here's how you raise a child. And if you do all these things, it's gonna work out right. Job's gonna come and say, hold on a second. I did everything right. I didn't vaccinate my children. I fed them organic. We lived off grid. I um, homeschooled them. And my son had a hole in his heart and he died at six years of age. There's a glitch to the system. That's what Job would say. And then Ecclesiastes would say, listen, I was a good parent. I did everything right. And my son grew up to be a drug addict. Ecclesiastes would say that. And there's a glitch in the system. So both of them are rounding out, okay, we don't live in Eden anymore. We live east of Eden. And because we live east of Eden, what should be very often is not. So how do you live in a broken world? And Ecclesiastes is gonna explore this and ask these questions and it's gonna do this for us. And it's amazing to me. So I call chapter one, this is what I call it, the treadmill. You ready? I am, let's go. The treadmill. Verse one. The words of the preacher, the koalath in Hebrew, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This preacher, which could be translated philosopher, could be translated um, teacher, quester. There's all kinds of ways to translate it. This guy never identifies himself. So who is it? For years, people said it's Solomon, but now there's like, maybe it's not. I just say to people that say, maybe it's not Solomon. I say, give me the next best candidate. Someone who is wise, someone who has achieved this, someone who has peace, someone who has a bunch of ladies, somebody who is king of Jerusalem. Give me the next best candidate. The burden of proof is on you. So I say, it's Solomon. That's what I say. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and swims like a duck, what does that mean? 
it's gonna win some football games. That's what it means. <laughs> right? It just it makes sense to me. So this preacher, he's a gatherer of people. He's a gatherer of wisdom. And, and he's now going to say, listen, here's how I live life. And I could live it without boundaries. Like you and I can't live the same way he did. He lived without boundaries. So if you could somehow take Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, and you could take Hugh Hefner, and you could take Albert Einstein and smash them into one person, you'd have Solomon. Now that's a, that's a crazy recipe. Smart, pleasure, achievement, you know, everything. So he's believable. If I tell you, listen, money won't make you happy. You'll say, shh, what do you know? Right. But if Solomon says it, a guy so wealthy that he made silver like three quarter minus, you just toss it out and you use it as gravel on your road. Okay, I'll listen to him. If I tell you, listen, pleasure's not gonna satisfy you. You'd be like, what do you know about pleasure? If Solomon says it, right? Solomon made Hugh Hefner look like a rookie. Dude, I got a thousand, you got six Playboy bunnies? got a thousand of them. Come on, give me a break, right? If he says it, okay, maybe he knows what he's talking about. Maybe he's right. If I tell you, listen, achievement won't make you happy. You're gonna be like, what have you achieved in your life? If Solomon says it, who built an empire, okay, all right. If I tell you work won't make you happy, you'll say, what do you know about work? Solomon, who's king, would say, I know, I got the best job in the world, and it still didn't do it, right? If education or smarts. If I tell you, listen, education and smarts aren't gonna do it for you, you'd say, well, how, what's your IQ? Well, Solomon's the wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus. Then he, what he says means something. So he's without boundaries. He can explore this stuff to a level, we'll see it in chapter two, that you and I can't. And he's believable because of that. He has street creed. No matter if he's so wise, why did he act so foolish? His foolish lifestyle seems to negate his wisdom. I say his foolish lifestyle actually proves that he's wise. Here's what I mean. Very often in the place, especially men, very often the place that men think they're the best is where they'll fail. Noah was called a righteous man the most righteous man on earth. He's saved by God. Where does Noah fail? In his righteousness, he gets drunk, naked, and there's some kind of sexual problem in his tent. That's the last scene we get of Noah. Failed in his righteousness. Abraham is called the father of faith. Where does Abraham fail? His faith, right? Believe me, I'm gonna give you kids with your wife. Nah, you can't do it. I'm gonna take this other woman to do it, right? Or with Abimelech. They all protect you. I'm gonna make sure, I'm gonna multiply you. I'm gonna make you like the stars, of this, uh, the stars of the sky. And what does he do when he faces the Pharaoh? He lies about the very woman that's supposed to produce one of the stars and says, she's my sister, not my wife. He fails in his strongest point, which is his faith. Moses is called the meekest man on earth. Where does he fail? His meekness. He gets mad at the children of Israel, strikes a rock, gets all inflamed. Must I fetch water for you rebels? He fails in his meekness. Peter, what's his strong suit? He's courageous. Bid me come out of the boat and walk to you. There was 12 guys in that boat. Only one of them said, I wanna try to walk on water. 
right? It's courage. When Jesus says, you're all gonna leave me, you're all gonna deny, deny me, what does Peter say? Not me, I'll die for you, right? When the guards come to take Jesus, who's the one with the sword hacking at people's ears? Peter, right? He's got courage. How's he fail? In his courage. When a little girl says, hey, weren't you buddies with Jesus around a fire? And he goes, no, I never knew him. He fails in his courage. Very often it's in the spot that we think we're the strongest that we will fail. We have to be careful. There's this guy, his name is Dr. Howard Hendricks. Brilliant, brilliant professor. And he looked at these pastors who had gone to seminary. So they'd given six years of their life to going into the ministry. They're dedicated to it. And all these pastors within two years had quit the ministry. So he went and he interviewed all 246 of them to try to find out what happened to you, man? You only made it two years or less? Here's what he found. Number one, they all quit reading the Bible for themselves. So they stopped just kind of feeding themselves scripture, number one. Number two, none of them had accountability. So there weren't elders that they met with or people that they were interacting with. They were lone rangers by themselves. And number three, all of them said this, it'll never happen to me. And yet 80% of the 246 failed and were out of the ministry because of a wrong relationship with a woman. Never happened to me. What happened to Solomon? Wrong relationship with a woman. About 700 of them, right? And 1 Kings chapter 11, verse four says this, they turned his heart against Yahweh. He thought it never happened to me. I'm strong, I'm wise, I can handle this. I'm above the law. These rules don't apply to me. When you start saying that about yourself, you're doomed. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 12, eight through 10. He says, where I am weak, then he is strong. Therefore, I glory in my weaknesses. Why? Because then he's strong for me. Man, when you know you're weak, what do you do? You guard yourself. You pray for yourself. You're begging for help. You're not saying, hey, God, I got this one. <laughs> you can just leave me alone on it, right? Be careful. Solomon's wisdom was his downfall. He thought, I got it. I can handle 700 women, God. I got it. And God's just snickering. Yeah, right. No one can do that, bud. Be careful, right? So I think it's Solomon. And he starts by saying this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. <laughs> How many times can you say vanity in a row? Is that a way to start a book or what? Meaningless, 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 stupid, 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 stupid. That's what he's saying. It'd be like coming up and saying, hey, bro, how you doing? You just say, meaningless, man. Life is meaningless. Oh, well, what time is it? I gotta go. Be like that, right? Like I said in the introduction, I said, aren't believers always supposed to say, oh, everything's great, man, awesome. Not Solomon. Life is meaningless. You read this book and you're like, I just wanna hug Solomon. Bro, you seem so angry. Come over for dinner, get a hug. Meaningless. Uh, my daughter, Bella, is working at a job. And Sunday, she said this guy had come in and uh, was, hey, you're Matt Heverly's daughter. Yeah. I love him. I love, oh, he's, every time I go to Ezra, I feel like I learned something. 
And uh, she's like, oh, that's cool, right? She goes, I, he goes, I go to this other church sometime. Every time I go there, I leave feeling really good. But when I leave Edgewood, I feel like I learned something. And my oldest daughter, Carissa, who was kind of there listening to this conversation, she goes, yeah, we learned that life is meaningless every Sunday. <laughs> I just cracked up. <laughs> okay, you were paying attention, weren't you, on Sunday? Meaningless, it, it's, this word is mentioned 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And it's a hard word to translate. Some people say it means temporary smoke, you know, it just appears and disappears, but it can mean that. But if you don't get what this word means, the book won't make sense, okay? So let me try to expand what it means. So if you can... Look at chapter six. Verse one. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Now, is that temporary? Is that smoke? Mm Mm-mm. He's saying, I've seen this kind of life, he's really talking about himself, where you have everything you could possibly want and you're miserable and it's hevel. Doesn't mean temporary, doesn't mean smoky, doesn't mean you know, transient, it means something different. It means it's a glitch in the system, right? Or chapter eight, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is hevel. Does that mean temporary or transient? No. He said, I look out and I see really good people, bad things happen to them. And I see really wicked people, and man, they seem to be killing it and getting away with it. And that's vanity. He's saying there's a glitch in the system. Or I would say, It's an enigma. There's things in life that don't make sense. So this word hevel, it can mean temporary. It can mean transient, but it can also mean life is an enigma. Sometimes it just doesn't add up. I don't know why that guy is getting blessed when he's such a moron and this really good guy is getting cursed. It doesn't make sense. It's hevel. So this word, it's wide and it's broad and it's brilliant, right? We all feel this, don't we? Don't you know people that you're like, I don't know why they're getting ahead because they're such evil people. Or this guy is such a great guy. Why does everything he starts or everything he tries, why does it just crumble? It's unfair. I can't figure it out. It's hevel. It's you're at your job and you work your tail off and you give yourself to your job. And another guy who lies and is deceitful, he gets the promotion. And you say, it's Hevel, that's glitchy. And instead of the promotion, you actually get punished. You get blamed for 
things that you didn't do. And you would say, it's Hevel. It doesn't make sense. You're an above average parent. You did everything you could for your children. You helped them, you blessed them, you dedicated yourself, you sacrificed all that you could for them. And now your son or daughter is addicted to heroin. You say, it doesn't make sense. Well, on the other side, you have this foster kid whose parents were just cooking meth in the bathtub and they end up being the next Billy Graham. And you say, it doesn't make sense. It's glitchy. It doesn't add up. That's this word. That's this word. It's, it's wide. It's crazy, right? It's this, it's this enigma to life. So Joan Collins said this, and I love this quote. She said, beauty is like being born rich and then slowly going poor. How good is that? Okay, that's Hevel. That's Hevel. It doesn't make sense, right? Ah, ah. So Solomon, what he's gonna do is, is he gonna, he's gonna dive into this thing that we all sense, this enigma, this glitch to life, and he's gonna dive into it in this chapter by saying, you see it in the monotony of life? You see it that you get wisdom, but wisdom doesn't change anything. Chapter two, you see it that wealth doesn't help. And then lastly, you see it, at the end, you just die. So that's the next couple of chapters, hyper depressing. I hope we all make it through. <laughs> that's my prayer. Please make it through this, all right? And by the way, and this is way like you can ignore this because it, it doesn't matter too much to Ecclesiastes, but it matters really to the Bible, if you're gonna study the Bible. So um, in a long time ago, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language, which was the language of the land. And when it's translated, it's called the Septuagint, or it's often, if you read a commentary, it'll be LXX, the 70, right? So, because um, it was 70 people that translated it. So the Septuagint was the Bible that Paul, Peter, James, it's the Bible they read. So when they're writing their Greek letters, the epistles of Romans or whatever it is, the Bible that they're going to reference is not the Hebrew Bible, it's the Septuagint. So what that means is this, very often they will be reflecting upon the Old Testament as they're writing the New Testament and they'll quote. When they quote, they quote the Septuagint. And this little word, hevel, is translated in the Septuagint to the Greek word matiotes. And it means the same thing, vanity. And it gets picked up very often in the New Testament. And when you see how it's picked up in the New Testament, you know that those authors were actually reading Ecclesiastes. So for instance, Romans 8.20 says, all of creation has been subject to, anybody know? Vanity, Hevel, Matiotes. And then Paul begins, on, it's absolutely out of Ecclesiastes. He was reflecting on Ecclesiastes and then he demonstrates it's because of Jesus that this terrible thing, this vanity that's happened to the earth is gonna be restored and redeemed and will be brought out of this heaviness, this glitchiness. Jesus will come fix the glitch. So that's a freebie. You're like, please don't do that again. All right, so 
He's given us the opening. All right, this is who I am and everything's meaningless. And now he dives in, verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here's the next phrase that's huge. Hevel, 38 times, under the sun, 29 times. And it means this, secular life. If you look at life from a purely secular viewpoint, secular is the Latin for now. All that matters is now. There's no afterlife. There's no before us. All that matters is what we have right in this moment. Nothing transcends your five senses, right? If you can't touch it, if you can't taste it, if you can't feel it, if you can't see it, if you can't hear it, it doesn't exist. It's the modern scientific method under the sun. And it will be the way that this preacher evaluates life. There's nothing afterwards. Now, if there's nothing afterwards, he asks, why do you even work? Why does a man toil? Why do men work if this is all there is? Why don't we just live off the government or something? That's really what he's asking. And think about work for a second. Why do you work? You mow the lawn, what happens to the grass? It just grows back and you're mowing it again. You do the dishes, what happens? Man, they just seem to come right back. Like where in the world these dishes come from? You do the laundry, what happens? And you do it again. You paint the house, what's gonna happen? You'll paint the house again. You wash the car, what happens to it? It gets dirty again, right? We're like Sisyphus. The guy that has to roll the rock up to the top of the hill and we go to sleep in the morning, where's the rock? Bottom of the hill. Right? You get all the emails taken care of. You come back in the morning, list of emails again. You get all the paperwork taken care of. In the morning, there's more paperwork, right? That's what he's saying. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? And eventually you're gonna have to train a replacement who will be younger and cheaper and possibly a robot. So why do we do this? Why do we weary ourselves by working if this is all there is? And then he just goes into the monotony of life. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. They run to the place where the streams flow and there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a new thing of which it said? See, this is new. It's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things nor will be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. The monotony of life, seen in people, seen in creation, and seen in history. Seen in people, verse three. A generation goes and a generation comes. Just one generation marching after another generation, and that's it. 
Do you know that there are these giant cycles that actually seem to overlap history? I'll give you one. It's, it's a hundred year cycle that they've seen in America. So if you back up to the 1860s and the 1870s, there was this thing happening in the 1860s and 70s. Civil rights, right? We fought a civil war over it. There was this countercultural movement with these kind of hippie dudes, Emerson and Thoreau, Walden Pond, all that kind of countercultural thinking. For the first time, opium was now flooding in from the East into America. So now all of a sudden, drugs were there. In the 1860s and 1870s, civil rights, counterculture, loose morals, hippies, and drugs. And then there was this massive revival. D.L. Moody began to lead this massive revival and a bunch of people got saved. Fast forward exactly 100 years to 1960 and 1970. What do you have? Civil rights, big thing right then. Um, hippies, right? A bunch of countercultural kind of stuff and a bunch of drugs and loose morals, right? And what happens in the early 1970s? Jesus movement, one of the biggest movements of Jesus in reviving us as a continent. And there's a, these cycles, you just see them. And that's, that's what he's saying. There's, you know, there's just these cycles, right? And it just happens over and over. We got Gen X and Gen Y and whatever Gen we are now, you know? And, and really here's what you see. It's not linear. It's never linear with generations. They're always pushing off the previous generation. That's all they're doing. So it's like, my parents did that. So boom, I'm not gonna do that. My parents didn't have tattoos. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna have tattoos, right? And all the parents that get tattoos, they get old and wrinkly and their kids look at them and go, gee, I'm not getting tattoos, right? It's getting, I'm telling you, it's a circle until finally you're back to your great grandpa. And then you just start it over again, over and over and over and around and around and around and around. It's what happens. It's been studied. And that's what he's saying, that people are monotonous, just as you get older, it just gets faster, doesn't it? <laughs> Myron, my son had his fifth birthday and a week after it in August, he goes, dad, when's my birthday again? I'm like, bro, you got a year. He's like, how long? I said, you got a year. He's like, I can't do it. That's too long. I'm like, a year feels like a week now. I'm like, what? oh my goodness. The year's gone. Like it just, it just speeds up, right? Remember how long summer used to feel when you were a kid? Like you almost forgot school existed to your mom's like, hey, we got to go clothes shopping for school. School, what's that? I don't even remember what that is. It's this monotony just starts to, not only that, but nature, right? You got streams, you got this hydrological system that Solomon just watches year after year after year. And he's like, it's just monotonous. It's monotonous. Those seem to go faster, right? When you were young, it seemed like there's all these seasons, like there was hot season and then it got kind of warm season and then it got cold and the leaves fell and then there was some rain and then there was snow and then there was a thawing and there was a little bit of sun and then a little bit more rain and then a little bit of new leaves and new grass and it got warm and there was a sunburn season and you're back to hot. Now it's hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold and 10 years are gone. Like, wow, <laughs> cycle goes fast now. And it just lulls you into this kind of like, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah. Oh. History does the same thing. Verses eight through 11. All things are full of weariness. Is there anything new under the sun? Matt, iPhones are new. 
Solomon did not have an iPhone. Right, what do you do with an iPhone? It's got a calendar. Yeah, the Mayans had it like 5,000 years ago. So that's not new. Um, social media, that's new. No, it's not. Social media was done for years. It's called dinner, right? We just don't do that anymore. So that was still done. Well, we communicate on them. Nobody communicates on them, come on. And we've done that for years, right? Well, there's a camera, that's new. No, no, it's not. The cave drawings, it was the first selfie. Look at me, I killed this woolly mammoth. I want everybody to see it. This is my Instagram account on the side of the cave right here. It's not new, it's just different. It just became, oh, well, there's entertainment on it. I play video games. Yeah, they played real games, so that's not new either. So that's what Psalm, the big idea is there's nothing new. Yeah, maybe we've got technology and advancements to do the same thing better or worse, you decide, but it's not actually new. It's just monotonous. It's the same thing. In verse eight, he says this, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear full with hearing. He goes, I got weary because it was like there was an unsatisfiable appetite. I got a broken wanter in my heart. And it didn't matter how much I accumulated or how much I got, it still wanted more and more and more and more. Your boss compliments somebody else. What do you want? I want that compliment. Right, you see that new truck? It's got really cool mirrors. I need that truck. Acquisition is a cul-de-sac you cannot escape from. You just start going round and round and round and round and round and round. That's, do not get stuck in that. Like even hobbies are wearying, aren't they? I took my kids to the snow. I thought, this is gonna be so fun to take the kids to the snow. It was like an 18 hour day. Got up early, packed everything in, you know, get, you get everything packed up and get all the snow stuff and get it all into the suburban and finally get the kids in there. You know, one's always spilling out one outside and you're throwing that one back in. You go up there and you build a big fire and you're up there until dark and then you come back down. Everyone's soaking wet and cold and tired. They all take their baths and what are Charity and I doing? Unloading the suburban, cleaning it out, washing everything because all filthy and dirty and you're going to bed like 11 o'clock at night. I never want to go to the snow again. <laughs> right, hobbies are wearying. That's what he's saying. Just weary, weary, weary. And then verse 11, you die. <laughs> Solomon has the gift of encouragement. There's just monotony and you die and no one remembers you. God bless you. So what do you do? I'll give you two things and we'll be done. What do you do about the broken wanter? because everybody has it. And we all think acquisition, the next trinket, it's like we numb ourselves now with acquisition and we can do it at a level unprecedented in history. You know why? Amazon. <laughs> like instantly, right? You can be like on Amazon or Craigslist and whatever your heart's desire is, you get it right now. It's amazing. So what do you do? I think you gotta really, you gotta you, like slap yourself every once in a while, physically if necessary. And just tell yourself, when I'm 80 years old, will this matter? Will this help my relationship with Jesus, my spouse, my kids, my friends, my family? In 80 years, will this matter? 
Because if not, acquisition will take you and you will get stuck in a cul-de-sac just going round and round and round and round and round until you're hooked up to tubes in a hospital wondering why you did it all. Be careful. Because we live in an age of unprecedented acquisition. It's a cul-de-sac with no escape. Okay, second, the monotony of life. Life is monotonous, is it not? You work a lot, you sleep a lot, and you do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Looking forward to something that very often is a mirage that just seems to escape you. And that's what Solomon's saying, like nothing, it's all meaningless because it's it's the same thing over and over and over again. So what do you do? I took my son Elijah a number of years ago. He was four. So that'd be seven years ago. And uh, we'd, I'd take him to Walmart every once in a while. And every time we got into Walmart, for some reason, something would happen. The moment we'd walk into Walmart, he would instantly have to go to the bathroom. I'm like, dude, what? Come on. And like the second to the last place on earth I want to go into is a public restroom. The first place in the world I don't want to go into is the Walmart restroom, all right? Sorry if you work at Walmart, I just don't want to go in there. And when you're four, you got to touch everything. Just like dragging your hand along the wall, like just touching everything. You're like, stop it. Come on, I want to put in my straight jacket when we go into there. So I know that's all good. I'm like, okay, fine, let's go to the bathroom. So we go into the bathroom. And I know two things about it. He's going to touch everything. And the second thing is this, he's going to want to flush the toilet. Because the Walmart toilets are something different. Like, you know, your standard home toilet's boring. It's like, but what are the toilets in a public restroom? They're like turbo, man. You're like, kaboom. So at four, he loved that. So he finishes his business and he, he has to flush it, of course. So he flushes it and he's just like, yeah. And he goes, dad, can I do it again? Right? And for some reason, I'm just being a fuddy daddy. I was like, no, man, you can't. And I stopped and I thought, why not? That's ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, dude, keep doing it. Flood the place. I don't care. (laughs) Clean it up, man. Fine. Right? (laughs) And we were in there like five minutes. (laughs) Again, again, again. Now, why is it that at four, like the same thing over and over is so joyful? Right? Watch me go down the slide, dad. You watch him. How many times did he go down the slide? Like 87,000. You're like, ah. Watch me, dad. Watch me, dad. Watch me, dad. Watch right? There's something about a child that monotony does not affect. Like my kids, when they're younger, they don't do it as much now, but when they're younger, it was slug bug in the car. And slug bug wasn't enough. So then it became slug motorcycle, slug PT cruiser. I have no idea why. And slug bus. Like anything that they look like a bus, slug bus. So then it was like MMA in our car every time we drive. And they liked it. They're like, let's go for a drive. Why? Because it's slug fast in the car. So the monotony of driving was taken out. Why? Because they had something to do. Hit each other. It's awesome. So why is that? Why do kids escape from the monotony even though they do the same thing over and over and over again? Well, there's this essay by a writer called G.K. Chesterton. If you want to read a a a very interesting thinker, read G.K. Chesterton. So this is what he says, quote, because children have abounding vitality 
because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never grown tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. Fascinating. So you have permission to flush the toilet twice. <laughs> Play slug bug with your spouse. <laughs> right? So in chapter one, and I'll give this away, and I try not to in Ecclesiastes because I think you need to actually let things sit. But chapter one, he's like, meaningless, nothing means anything, forget it. But look what he says in chapter 11. Chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Chapter one, nothing means anything. It doesn't matter what you do. Chapter 12, actually, it all matters. Every little thing that you do and I do matters. It's building something in me. It's building something in you. And that's the truth. It's, it's forming a trajectory for my life. Everything I do is. And that's actually what he believes. He's putting out presuppositional apologetics, entering into a thing that he not, may not believe in order to show it doesn't work, to get to this is the truth. Actually, everything matters. Jesus, may we grow young. May we be like little children saying, do it again. May we know that the decisions that we make tonight, tomorrow, they matter. It's not meaningless. It's not vanity, it's not hevel. They are forming something in us that will echo into eternity. And so we ask even this night, Lord, for your wisdom, whether we're in Job situations or Ecclesiastes situations or Proverbs situations, we pray for wisdom, that we would live life strong, that we'd live life in a way that brings glory to your name, that we'd live life joyfully, saying, do it again. So fill us with your spirit, empower us through your word, and may we be obedient servants. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.